Now Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman or virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came, To her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she she told her, and and actually that's a poor translation. It actually is, is it you, my daughter? Is it you? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as the time approached for Anna and I to pursue marriage together, I I really wanted to do something wonderful for the proposal. I wanted to be creative, and alas, I probably failed miserably. I'm not going to tell you what I did because it was really lame. Everybody has a different story, a different way in which the pursuit of marriage happens, in which the proposal happens, in in which all of those things come to fruition. And, And so many people who have more creative or more exciting stories love to tell those stories. And, and so many love to hear those stories. And that's one of the first questions that people ask people. How did you meet? And tell us more about this. And, and here in the book of Ruth, we have uh, the, the proposal. But it's not like the proposal that you would expect in a romance. It actually is a very odd chapter. Ruth, as you'll remember if you've been with us, in chapter one is, is with her mother-in-law in Moab. There's a, there's a, a famine in Israel. And and Naomi's uh, husband, Eli Melech, has taken his, uh, his family down into Moab, his wife and his sons, and they've married these two Moabitess, Ruth and, and Orpah, and, and they went and they lost 
everything in Moab. Naomi lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She, she was emptied in Moab. And then we saw in chapter 2 that she comes back as God has blessed his people and the Lord has remembered Israel and he's brought bread to the house of bread. And, and Naomi has gone back and she's come back, she said, full. And, and she's been blessed now. God has begun to work. In chapter 2, you see that complete reversal. There is, there is tragedy. There is barrenness in chapter 1. There is bounty and there is blessing in chapter 2. God has, has strategically worked and gone ahead of Ruth and everything. And Ruth has gone out to Boaz's fields to glean and she's, and she's gleaned. And God has provided for and protected Ruth in ways that she never could have imagined. And those two chapters make sense. And then if you know the story of Ruth, we're going to come to the last chapter next week. And, and there is that glorious picture of redemption accomplished. Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. And it's the glorious redemptive story, the culmination of redemption. And, and, and all of that makes sense. And yet we come to chapter 3 and we don't really know what to do with this chapter. There's so much about this chapter that that begs the question, why is this chapter in this story? Why relay this chapter? It's such an odd, it's such an odd part of this story. And in some respects, uh, we would err if we read Ruth chapter 3 as a crucial part of Ruth as a romance. I think that's the, that's the tendency for people to do, especially single Christians to read Ruth because there is an element of romance, and yet chapter 3 is not about the romance. Um, Chapter 3 is really about trusting God, and it's about godly character in the lives of his people, and it's about God taking care of things in such a way that we don't need to fret about it and try to take it into our own hands. It's actually an interesting turn, if you caught that, on what most people do when they look at this chapter where Ruth is essentially proposing marriage to Boaz when she goes to the threshing floor and she lays down. And as we consider this chapter, we're first going to consider uh, the, the act of Naomi in light of God's providence. And then secondly, we're going to consider the acts of Ruth in light of God's providence. And finally, the acts of Boaz. But notice, as the chapter opens, Naomi, she is now full. She is a different woman. She has realized God has provided. She is no longer the one who said, don't call me uh, Naomi, uh, call me Mara, call me bitter. Don't call me plenty, call me bitter. She's no longer that woman. She has seen God's kindness. She has seen the hand of the Lord. She has seen God going before and taking care of everything in a way that she and Ruth never could have imagined. And that was the point of chapter 2. God was providing and protecting far beyond anything that Naomi or Ruth could have imagined. And that God was weaving his purposes of grace out in the lives of these two ordinary women, in the lives of these two widows, one a Jew and one a Gentile. And as we move into chapter 3, we see something interesting emerge with regard to Naomi. Naomi really is to be commended and criticized simultaneously in this chapter. Notice that as the author begins, he says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, here is a godly woman. Here is a woman who cares deeply about her daughter-in-law. Here is a woman who's not thinking first and foremost about herself. 
Here's a woman who had shared the gospel with Ruth. That's how Ruth was converted in chapter 1. Ruth could only say, your God will be my God and your people will be my people because she had been taught the covenant promises and purposes of God by her mother-in-law during those 10 years in Moab. And here Naomi again is rising to the occasion and she is thinking not of herself. She is thinking selflessly for her daughter-in-law. And she is wanting the best for her daughter-in-law. Notice the language. And I think the ESV captures this so well at this point. Many of you joke about me correcting the ESV so often. I think, I think the ESV actually captures this well. She says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, that is not an insignificant uh, choice of the wording. It is a very specific choice. Naomi realizes that for Ruth to have a part with the covenant people, she has to be wed by a kinsman redeemer. Even though God has already gone before, has already been providing, has already been protecting Naomi and Ruth, Ruth is still a Moabite. She's still a pagan. She's still outside of the covenant promises. She's still far outside of the kingdom of God in one sense and has not yet fully and legally been integrated into the covenant community. And what Naomi realizes is that a full inclusion in the people of God, in a saving sense, means rest. Now, there's a whole biblical theology of rest in the Bible. The Bible opens with a focus on that eternal rest, the seventh day. And the rest of the scripture is, how do we enter into that rest? That's the whole meta-narrative of the Bible. The older I get, the more I realize how wearisome life is, how fraught with difficulty, how challenging, how bitter life can feel at times, how, how heavy laden our souls can feel. When you're in your 20s, you don't feel that. When you're in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and your 60s, and I imagine it doesn't ever really go away. You feel the need for rest. And here, Naomi is doing something very theological. She's actually acting selflessly for the best spiritual good of her daughter. She realizes that if, if there could be a kinsman redeemer, if there could be a redeemer for Ruth, then Ruth would have some sort of claim on the rest that God had provided in the land that he gave Israel. Now, all of that was a type of heaven. That was all just typical. It was all shadows in the Old Testament. And it's all pointing forward to Christ. It's all pointing forward to the one who stood and who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Very interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. But uh, so many of Jesus' miracles that are highlighted in the gospel narratives um, happen on the Sabbath day. It's very interesting. And, and Jesus saying in Matthew 11, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul, happens in the context of the Sabbath day healings. He is the rest provider. I love the way John Newton captures this. I'm sorry, John Bunyan. A lot of Johns in church history. Um, I love the way John Bunyan captures this in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian finally comes to the cross and the big burden on his back is, is rolled off of his back and down the hill and into the empty tomb. What an amazing picture, isn't that? 
goes to the cross and the burden goes into the empty tomb. And, and he cries, he has given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. He's given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. And here, Naomi, while maybe not aware of the full redemptive historical nature of what she's saying, is she is appealing to for her daughter a desire for the spiritual rest that God would provide her as it's held forth in the scriptures. And so she's to be commended. And yet she's to be criticized. How is Naomi to be criticized? What is Naomi doing wrong? Naomi tells Ruth exactly what to do. You've seen Boaz. You've been in Boaz's fields. Boaz has been very kind to you. Boaz has taken note of you. He's seen you. He's provided for you in a way he hasn't even done for his other female servants in the field. And and here's what you need to do. You need to go in late at night. You need to put on, as one theologian said, some Moab number seven. And you need, to, you need to perfume yourself. And you need to go and you need to lay down at the, at the feet of Boaz and he'll tell you what to do. And she's playing matchmaker. Uh, she, she, is, she thinks this is how this is going to happen. Now, she's right. Boaz is going to become the redeemer. And yes, Ruth is proposing marriage to him, which in one sense is not wrong, though, and here's the rub, Naomi and Ruth, but Naomi especially, should have trusted that the Lord had it worked out. I think that's why chapter three is in Ruth. I don't think it's to set out this really amazing proposal story or engagement story or how they met in some kind of romantic way. I think that Ruth chapter 3 is telling us that Naomi should have waited on the Lord, but she took matters into her own hands. And I think that there are a million lessons there for us, and that chief among that is that we are often not trusting the Lord when he's already shown us that he provides, and he's already shown us his kindness and his mercy, his covenant mercy, his long-suffering, and yet we want to take matters into our own hands. Every time we get frustrated in our souls about anything, we are acting just like Naomi. Anytime we get frustrated and we decide, I have to do something to change this. And listen to me, every one of us is guilty of that. I am most guilty of that. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do? And we don't seek the Lord, and we don't rest in the fact that the Lord's already got it worked out. And it's not an inactive trusting that the Scripture calls for. It's not a let go and let God It's an active trusting. It's an active quieting my heart before him, settling my heart before him. And what Naomi really should have said to Ruth is, uh, my daughter, you have found such enormous favor from Boaz, and he's a a redeemer, and maybe he'll be the one that redeems you. Um, Let's pray for that. Let's wait on the Lord for that. But she takes matters into her own hands. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder... I would assume that Naomi knows the scriptures very well, and she knows the law, the the Leverite law, that if a man died and he had a brother, his brother should go in and raise up the nearest of kin. And she would have known there was a nearer redeemer. I mean, Boaz knew it immediately. Naomi probably did. So you can see how Naomi trying to take matters into her hands is even seen in the fact that she's trying to bypass what is so clearly taught in God's word. That's going to become enormously important by the end of this chapter. But secondly, we see the great 
humility and meekness of Ruth. Um, Ruth. Ruth knows that she deserves nothing. We saw that last week. Ruth acknowledges how undeserving she is repeatedly in chapter 2. She constantly says, you know, why have you taken note of me? And why, who am I? And, you know, there's actually an allusion in this chapter to her unworthiness still at this point. When, when she goes into Boaz, and she's so humble and meek, she says to her mother-in-law, I'll do whatever you tell me. And she goes into Boaz, and she, um, she lays down, and Boaz had been drinking, I assume, barley wine. I like to think it was a barley wine. And, and he doesn't, we don't know how much he drank, but he wakes up and he realizes she's there. And he says to her, who are you? It was a barley harvest. That's why I said barley wine. Um, and, and he says to her, who are you? And then when she comes home, at the end of the chapter, and she comes home with all the, the, the huge 80 pounds. I, mean, I don't know how big Ruth was, but 80 pounds. She brings home... She's got to be a strong woman. She's out in the field all day, not getting tired. She brings all that, that grain home. And, and Naomi's first word to her, though it's dark when she comes home, is, is that you, my daughter? Who are you? Is that you, my daughter? And, and what I think that's supposed to trigger in us is that here is Ruth the Moabitess. Who is this? It's Ruth the Moabitess. Remember that repetition that she's outside of the covenant community. She's not part of the old covenant church. She's a stranger to the covenant promises. And who are you, Boaz says. And then she comes home and Naomi says, is that you, my daughter? And, and that's meant to fill our minds. But Ruth is at every point acknowledging that. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. She's listening to a believer telling her how to find the Redeemer. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is really all commendable for Ruth because Ruth knows she has no claim to anything. And so Ruth is everywhere listening to a believer telling her where a Redeemer is and to go to the Redeemer. That's what Ruth is doing. Naomi has said, go to the Redeemer. She's gone to the feet of the Redeemer. Um. There is a massive, there's a beautiful picture um, here. I remember reading this as a young Christian and, and it hitting me. You know, Boaz is so clearly a type of Christ who descends from him. He's a type of the Redeemer. He is a Redeemer. Isn't that interesting? There's other Redeemers in the same book. But there's only one Redeemer, ultimately. And, and he'll descend from Boaz and Ruth. And, and yet that language of, she went and lay at his feet. And, and my mind started racing through the Gospels because there's this beautiful way that the Scriptures speak about believers coming to the Redeemer, and it's that they sit at the feet of Christ. You have it with the sinful woman who comes behind him in Luke 7, and she's weeping because she knows he's the gracious Redeemer, and he's, she approaches him, and she's washing his feet with her tears and with her hair. She's She's at the feet of Jesus. And then you have it with one of the Marys in John chapter 12, and she is breaking open that alabaster flask of oil, preparing the Redeemer for his burial, and she's anointing his feet. And then you have it with Mary, the sister of Martha, in Luke chapter 10, where we're told that Martha was just like us, torn every which way, worried, cumbered with serving, anxious. Ah, help my si tell my sister to help me, Jesus. And where's Mary? She's at the feet of the Savior. And then you have it in the account of the Gadarene demoniac, the one that Jesus cast the legion of demons out of. And when the people come, Luke says that they found the man who had been demon-possessed 
clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then you have it at the end of the Gospels when Jesus is risen from the dead and the disciples realize it and they rush to him and they fall down and they grab his feet and they worship him. Now, if that doesn't convince you that that's what this is a picture of in Old Testament typology, I don't know what will. This is a picture of a believer going to the place of blessing. This is a picture of a believer trying to position himself or herself in front of the Savior to be noticed by the Savior. Now, we already know. The Savior's already noticed us, and, and Jesus notices his people before they come to him, and Jesus is the one that goes and draws them to himself, and Jesus pursues his people. We don't pursue him by nature. He pursues us, but as he does, as he takes note, God's people go to him, and they sit at his feet, and there is nothing There is nothing that you and I need more than anything than to sit at the feet of Jesus. There's nothing. I promise you a bigger bank account is not more important. Nothing is more important. Um, And how often we can go days and weeks and months without doing that. as I prepared this, I, I, I was thinking my hope from this message would be that the Lord does a great work in us, that we would pull away from all the busyness and all the cares and all the anxieties, and that we would find rest at the feet of the Redeemer. I think that's, I think that's a big part of Ruth chapter 3. Um, the, the psalmist says in one place, uh, the sons of men busy themselves in vain. What, a, what, a, what an accurate way of speaking of our lives. Busy themselves in vain. Run around this globe. We're like little, Puritans would say worms. <laughs> um, in vain. And yet, here's this beautiful picture of what God wants for us to go to the Redeemer. And she does. And and she does everything that her mother-in-law asks, and she becomes the beneficiary of the blessing. She doesn't get Boaz to respond to her proposal at that moment, and she doesn't come home with a husband, though another theologian said when she comes home with those 80 pounds of grain, you had to wonder if, uh, you had to wonder if Naomi was like, is Boaz in the bag? Because <laughs> that's a lot of grain. That she, he gives her this massive amount. Uh, also, someone said uh, he liked to picture Boaz as uh, Danny DeVito and Ruth as Rosie O'Donnell. Kind of, uh, that'll just mess you up forever. Um, <laughs> but here, but here, she comes home. She's the beneficiary. She's seen God is working all things out. She's become the recipient, and Naomi is blessed with her. Here's a really, really interesting note. Because of Ruth, the Gentile, the Jew gets blessed. Isn't that fascinating? It should be fascinating if you know your Bible. The Gentile is blessed by the Redeemer, and so in turn, Naomi, the Jew, is blessed with her. And it's because Ruth has a heart that wants whatever God would want for her. And notice that Boaz is just remarkable, and in the third place, we want to consider his actions in light of God's providence. Boaz is an older man. We don't know how old, um, 
he might be in his 60s or 80s. We, we don't know, and she's young. The narrative uh, continually tells us that. This is unlikely. In fact, Boaz assumes she's going to find a husband in the fields, a younger man that she's working with. And, and uh, he's taken note of Ruth, and he's taken note of her godliness. Everybody has. Everybody in this narrative is talking about Ruth's virtue and how noticeable that is. And um, it would have been very easy. I mean, again, the, the text highlights that Boaz had been drinking and eating, and his heart was merry, and you're meant to, to understand that he had been drinking. And, and it, would have, it, it, it would have been likely if another man, his situation, his age, not married, had a young woman come in and position herself in that way, that he would have done what most people in the world would have done. But that's not what he does. And the question is, why does Boaz respond the way that he does? Why does Boaz? Is it just because Boaz is ashamed people think that they had a one-night stand? No, don't read him sending her out in that way. Um, and, and there's not any earthly consequences that are running through Boaz's mind. If I do this, what are going to be the consequences? So I don't want to do that. Boaz is acting as a man living before the Lord. And that's... That's what we've seen with Boaz the whole time. The first time he appears, he comes out of Bethlehem. He says to his workers, the Lord be with you. They say, the Lord bless you. Everything that Boaz does, he's doing quorum day before the face of God. He's doing it before the presence of God. And here he is doing the same thing. Notice Ruth comes in and when he realizes that she's at his feet, notice verse 9, he says, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And she asks him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. The first thing he says is, may Yahweh bless you. May the covenant Lord give his blessings to you. That what Boaz wants for Ruth, first and foremost, is God's spiritual good for her. He's not thinking of himself. He's not thinking first and foremost of his own needs. And, and he'll give intimations that, of course, he's interested. Of course, he's seen the real beauty of Ruth. Of course, he wants a wife. And we're going to see the length to which he goes in the last chapter. But the big point is that Boaz is a godly man who has learned to trust the Lord. And in doing so, has a heart that wants what is right for Naomi, not what is selfishly to be gained for him. Now, again, I, as I thought about that and think of my own actions, and um, there, there are a world of lessons there. Um, is our life characterized by wanting spiritual good in every situation in which we walk into for others? Or are we just trying to, to hold on to whatever we can, gain whatever we can? Um, by the way, selfishness is very very subtle, and it can be, it can be um, controlling the heart, and we don't even recognize it. Um, here, Boaz seems to be emptied of selfishness, and you know, one writer put it this way, as, as you consider, how, how is it that Boaz deals with such kindness to, to Ruth, and with such uprightness, and integrity, and godliness, and then more provision, and, and um, this particular writer said, here is a man who has schooled himself by this principle. By spiritual exercise and obedience and waiting, he has learned to slow down his heart rate and wait for God to display his clear will and his providential purposes. 
I love that. He schooled his heart with this, per- with this principle. He's learned by spiritual exercise of obedience and waiting on the Lord to slow down his heart rate, rate and to wait for God to display his clear will and his providential purposes. Now, let me unpack that. Boaz doesn't learn to do this off the cuff. Um, we are in times of trial what we were before the trials come. We will not be in tri- under trial and affliction anything other than what we are now by God's grace or lack thereof. Boaz had been a man who had been giving himself to a spiritual commitment to the Lord and to his word. Boaz knew that by God's word and by his law, he really didn't have a right to take Ruth to himself. Isn't that interesting? He's factoring in what has God said in his word. He's he's processing what's happening at his feet in light of what he knows God's word to say. And that, let me say this this morning, that is the most significant and important thing we have to learn, and it's the hardest thing to learn. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, um, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in, in bringing down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And And that's what Boaz is doing. Boaz is living as a man who is committed to the Lord and to his word and to trusting that God's going to work it out in his providence. And and notice he says that. He says to her, there's another redeemer. There's, uh, in verse 12, he says, I know it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. You see, Boaz is ready to say, this is in the Lord's hands. Let him do what is good to him. Now, there's a word here for single people wanting to get married. There's a word here for married couples um, longing to see their children come to know the Lord. There's a word here for everybody at every stage of life in whatever situation. Um, the more we know God's word, because Boaz clearly knew God's word well, the more we know God's word, the more apt we'll be to appeal to it because we've been applying ourselves to it and it to us along the way so that when those difficult circumstances come, we're not trying to wing it, we're not trying to please ourselves, but we're trying to entrust ourselves to the divine purposes of God um, Boaz could have easily, by the way, he could have easily um, tried to read what was happening as God's will for him. You got to listen very carefully to this. I think the majority of Christians do that. Whatever, I can't, I cannot tell you how many times I've had people say, "Well, you know, this happened and this happened." I'm just wondering if that's not what the Lord wants. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Everywhere. It's, here's what God has said. There's a mystery to his providences. We have to learn to wait. We have to learn to trust him. We have to live in light of his word. And we need to be under that word and that word shaping us and driving us forward. That's, that's the difficult challenge of living the Christian life in the darkness, if I can say that, of God's providence, what he's doing. Now, 
there's something else here. Boaz is not just this devout and godly and upright man in the sense that he is waiting on the Lord. He, again, is a type of the Redeemer. And it's very interesting what he does to Ruth. He, he, he really provides for her. He protects her. She's come to him and she said, let me find rest under the shadow of your wings. By the way, that's always used in the scriptures of God and God's people. And Jesus comes and he says, he was like a mother hen willing to gather his, her chicks under his wings. That's the picture of God spreading his divine, redemptive wings over his people. And she's come to the Redeemer for that, and God has already begun to show her that that is exactly what he's going to do through the Redeemer. He has provided for her, but notice what he's done for her. Notice verse 14. She lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, and I assume he says to his servants, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. What, what is Boaz doing? Boaz is, is taking away any shame. Please listen carefully. He's taking away any shame that Ruth might have felt for having been put in that situation. It could look completely inappropriate. You know, I think there's a word here for us. Um, Jesus not only deals with the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin, he takes the shame of our sin. That's why he's crucified naked, by the way. It's publicly shamed. He despised the shame, the writer of Hebrews says. Um, he took the shame of his people's sins. And there's a sense where when, when men and women go to Jesus in the Bible, there's a sense of fear and trepidation. I think in part because of the sense of the shame of sin. When Peter realizes that Jesus is God, the God, the infinite God, and he gets that catch of fish, and, and, and he realizes that this is God in the flesh, and he falls down and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Isaiah sees Jesus high and lifted up, and in, in that heavenly vision in Isaiah 6, John 12 tells us that's Jesus, and Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. That's, that's the response that sinners have. They don't have a glib, yeah, man, Jesus, my buddy. This is the Lord of glory. And, and there's a sense of shame that even in coming to him, will he receive me? Will he redeem me? Have I sinned beyond his grace? Have I done so poorly in, in seeking to follow him that, that he's going to cut me off. And, and Jesus comes constantly with the do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know, I want to close with this thought because I, I heard this and I thought, that's really remarkable. I've never thought about this. But there's a, there's a sort of a juxtaposition in um, the story of Boaz and Ruth and then the story of their descendant, David, because that's where everything's moving, right? Initially, it's moving to David, the grandson, the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth, um, and then the Redeemer from him. And, and there's a juxtaposition, isn't there? Because David finds himself in a similar position as Boaz, but he does the contrary with Bathsheba. What do I do when I've acted like David? and I've not acted with the integrity of Boaz, and I've not acted with the obedience of Boaz, and I've failed and I've fallen miserably? That's the great question. And the answer, I think, is just as Boaz sends Ruth away 
and removes the shame, the perceived shame, Jesus says, come to me. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to cleanse you. You know, David cried out for the very thing that Boaz exhibits in this chapter, the covenant kindness and mercy. When he repents in Psalm 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Jesus is the greater Boaz. And if you will go to him for the first time or for the thousandth time, he has promised to give you rest, to cover his wings over you, to protect you, to remove your shame, and to teach you to become a man like Boaz or a woman like Ruth in waiting for him to fulfill his purposes. I hope that this will stir you up, perhaps by way of reminder, of um, where you go to find rest for your souls. Um, There is a Redeemer, and we need to go to him. And we need to sit at his feet. We need to be in his word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be calling on him, and we need to know that he is the merciful, kind, gracious Redeemer who will receive and bless everyone that comes to him, believing in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this marvelous picture and so full of treasures for our souls. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Redeemer and that there is no other Redeemer and that You love to have your people sitting at your feet. And Lord, we acknowledge the many days and weeks and even months for some here who have not been sitting at your feet. And so we pray that all of us would be brought to a place of coming to you and knowing that you remove the guilt and the shame of our sin, that you receive us, that you bless us, that you continue to provide for us and protect us, that you cast your wings over us. Lord Jesus, do that for each and every man and woman and boy and girl in this place this morning. Please give us new mercies and new grace and new kindness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.